So uh, good evening to one and all here tonight and also to those who are joining with us on our podcast service. It's uh, really good to have you with us and I pray that you feel just at home. I'd love if you would, we're just going to dive straight into the Word of God and I'd love if you go to the book of Habakkuk and... Uh, And the, uh, the book of Habakkuk is uh, the prophet Habakkuk finds himself despairing of even life itself. He is down in the depths and he's feeling very sorry for himself. Not that we ever get like that, but he did, okay? And so wickedness prospered all around him. And, uh, and apart from about five verses in three chapters of this book, it seems void of any encouragement. And uh, if you want a quick spiritual pick-me-up, you have to read the whole three chapters. Because if you just read the first, you'll still be feeling left in despair just like he was. Amen? It's pretty dismal at times. And uh, the prophet Habakkuk had, uh, had seen the result of the northern kingdom of Israel being taken by the but uh, brutal Assyrians. And that uh, conquest took, uh, happened in 722 B.C., which was about 100 years before the prophet was living. Many were taken away captive, and the rest came down into the southern kingdom of Judea. And so this is about 100 years after that. And so He'd also seen in about 612 BC that the Assyrians were flattened, and Nineveh was annihilated, and Habakkuk probably wasn't too disappointed with that because they were cruel oppressors, and he would have thought, yes, Lord, give it to them now. Give it to them. Give them another one. And, uh, but what happened is the Assyrians were only, uh, they were, had overtaken the land and were very, very dominant, but only it gave away to a new uh, enemy, and that was the Babylonians. And he was also aware, because he would have seen in 605 BC, was the first of the deportations of people from Jerusalem to exile into Babylon. It also happened in 597 or 5, 597 and 586 BC, but... But he was aware of a similar fate of the southern kingdom of Judea being taken into captivity by Babylon, and he could see that it wasn't too far away. And he was seeing all around him, wickedness just seemed to be prospering. Wickedness was flourishing. He says, what can the righteous do? And the first, in this book of chapters, it's only got three chapters in it, but it's pretty sad reading. And, uh, and so there was no vision, which is, well, there was no hope and there was no vision which is vital to all of our Christian walks. And, uh, and, uh, and he was a despairing prophet. And it says, in, and uh, God responded to the despairing prophet. And uh, in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, he says, he says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he, that's being God, will say to me. And what I will answer when I'm corrected. This starts to get good here. He said, then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets. This is the, normally the verse I use to preach on the first Sunday in January when we're talking about writing the vision for your life for the year. And he says that he may run who reads it. This is God speaking. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. And so, and then we go over the verse here in verse 4. Behold the proud, this is God speaking again, his soul is not, is not upright in him, but he says, but the just 
shall live by his faith. Can you say that? But the just shall live by his faith. And uh, so God responded to this very, very despondent prophet. And they were just about to head off into, in some time past, still to come, 70 years of exile. And yet God says to the prophet and to the people, the just shall live by faith. And so it gave them a hope and it gave them a vision that God was still with them in these very, very difficult times. And so uh, shall live, the Bible says. The Hebrew mindset that life is evidenced by the presence of the breath of God is wonderful, isn't it? When the breath of God is in something, the Bible says even in Genesis that it has life. So that word in the Hebrew is chayah. Can you say that? Chayah. Yeah, this means to live. And the yah is always, when you see a Hebrew word yah, or even in, a, in an English word, yah is the shortened form of Jehovah, or Jehovah, Yehovah, Yudhevavhe. And when you go to Israel today and you sit around a group of people to have a lemon, lime, and bitters, everybody would lift up their glass and they'd say, Chaim, and that means to life. And that is uh, very opposite to their adversaries whom surround the people of Israel because they serve and worship in a death cult. But uh, the Hebrew people are not like that. The Jewish people are not like that. They are life-orientated people. Chayah, to life. So there's 200 references in the Old Testament of this word chayah, and it reveals and more than suggests that living not only the preserved but a flourishing life is the result of doing the right thing. This is what our, our text notes in this verse say. Many here will know that this verse is one of the giant pillars of the faith, that the just shall live by his faith. Who's heard of that? We've all heard of that, haven't we? The just shall live by his faith. And so our study Bibles tell us that this verse literally reads, it means that the righteous person in or by his faithfulness, his firmness, his consistency, belief, faith and steadfastness shall live. If you hold faithful, firm, consistent and uh, steadfast, you shall live. In whatever circumstance you may find yourself in, you will live. And is there anybody here who likes the sound of and who would like to live? I see that hand. I would like to live. Amen. Oh, yes, I do. What about to stay alive or be preserved, to flourish even? Who would like to flourish? I don't want to exist. I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. And the Bible talks about this word chayah as to thrive, to enjoy life, to live in a happiness, to breathe, to be alive, to be animated. Who knows when people are animated, there is the life of God in that person. I mean, I like to behave in an animated way sometimes because I want to let people know that the spirit of the living God is in me, that I'm born again of the spirit of God. I mean, sometimes I'll wear a big Hawaiian red flower shirt because it's my born again shirt. And we should be like that too. We should exude the presence and the breath of God. So the just shall live by his faith. The Apostle Paul, when writing the granddaddy of all letters, who knows what granddaddy of all letters he wrote? And that letter or epistle to the Romans, I remember that one, grabbed hold of that verse in Habakkuk and in Romans 1.16. Let's now go to, we're going to leave Habakkuk now. We may come back to it very much at the end, but in Romans chapter 1, and verse 16, and this is Paul, Paul speaking here. And so uh, this here he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. It says in verse 14, you'll, uh, 17, you'll know this by heart, most of you. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by his faith. Or just shall live by faith. And so Paul's letter to the Romans is considered by most as the, it's the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. It is the Christian constitution, if you will. All the great doctrinal beliefs of the Christian faith can be found in Romans. And all his intellect, all Paul's learning, and he sat under the feet of Gamaliel, and he was his star pupil before he even became a Christian. All his intellect learning in the lifetime of being tutored by the Holy Spirit came to their height in the delivery of this most profound letter called the letter to the Romans. And coming to an understanding of all that the Holy Spirit had revealed, and now he penned for all time for us to be beneficiaries of it. But the early church flourished in difficult conditions. But operated in revelation knowledge, it could not be crushed while the word of God written on their hearts was present. Amen? And Paul had... Uh, basically dragged the scriptures from 600 years before into the New Testament scriptures. And so the new believers were very, very aware of this Old Testament scripture. But they came into a time when the Roman Emperor Constantine, he legalized the early Christian church and it made it the faith of the Roman Empire. And we think that was a fantastic thing to happen. I suppose the killing of Christians in the Colosseum was a good thing to cease, amen? And it was. But it wasn't long before the new and living way, and that's what it was called, it was called the people of the way. But this new and living way became an old and dead way. As institutionalized, Christianity was as powerless as any other religion. And that is true. Institutionalized Christianity is no better than Mormonism. It is no better than any other thing institutionalism of any religion just rips the power of it out. And that's what happened to the early church. And as soon as it became institutionalized, I would say within a period of decades, and we see throughout all of history, when there is a mighty move of God, a constitutional Christianity somehow gets a breath of God upon it, there's a move of the Spirit of God, everything is revitalized and refreshed, and the reality of Christ, no longer a theory, no longer anything like that. It's a wonderful thing. But what happened is church building programs removed a living faith from people's homes. And they built magnificent cathedrals. St. Paul's and, and St. Peter's and all that sort of stuff. It was all built. Magnificent, massive churches. And people became participators instead of spectators. They became, uh, they were no longer participators, but they became spectators. And I really hate spectator Christianity. I like everybody to be involved. I like, that's why I like when people can stand, and people can pray. And I've been in churches when people felt free to dance. And that's okay. If it's a move of the Spirit of God, that's fine. If it's a move of the flesh, well, then it's obviously not. But people were... Uh, uh, they were once participators and they now became spectators. And religion and all its abuses replaced relationship in a living God. And it can happen in every generation. I remember when John Wesley went to Ireland and he said, it's not Catholicism that I fear. He says, it's, it's dead religion that we have in England. 
He feared dead religion more than any other thing. The breath of life departed, but God would always have a remnant. And in every generation, we see that there is a remnant. Even in the days of Elijah, when he thought he was the only one who served God, there were six or seven others that God had covered for himself. And so for one, uh, just in a little bit of church history here, for, for over 1,000 years, this great gospel of salvation and the power of God released by it, that the just shall live by faith, had laid buried. Imagine that, the gospel being buried. But that is exactly what happened. And it was wrapped up in the grave clothes of religion, the traditions of men, and even in the Latin language, which had become a dead language. And it was said, even in the days of, uh, uh, of the Reformation, that it was said that only some priests could read Latin. The gospel was written in Latin for the whole of the West. They were cut off from the ancient Byzantine text. And so only certain very, very few priests could actually even read the Gospels. They had no knowledge of the Gospels. No knowledge. And so for over a thousand years, the Gospel was dormant, wrapped up in the grave clothes of this stuff. And so in the 1500s, there was a young monk, a young German monk, And he was sent to Rome to settle on behalf of others an issue with the Roman church. It wasn't a serious matter. He just had to go there. And uh, and he longed to go to this place called Rome. He heard it was one of the holiest cities on earth. This Roman monk called Martin Luther. And he approached this so-called holy city. And before long, even on the entrance into the city, he was confronted with every evil thing imaginable. He was vexed, more vexed probably than Lot in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. On approaching Rome, he witnessed firsthand prostitution, debauchery, drunkenness and every other wild vice and religious activity. The sale of indulgences, which was basically you could pay money for forgiveness, was rampant and only got worse in those years. And he heard an almost audible voice on his way into the city of Rome He said, the just shall live by faith. And he recalled already, because he was an amazing linguist, he could translate the ancient Hebrew and Greek and Latin text himself. He was very, very good. He translated the the New Testament in a matter of weeks while he was in hiding for his life. But prior to that, he translated that scripture, the just shall live by faith, faith." And and then he thought that word had come alive in his spirit, And so approaching this most holy place called Rome that he thought and saw everything, he heard almost in an audible voice, the just shall live by faith. It was a booming voice that it couldn't remove. Wouldn't remove from his spirit. And uh, he heard it before. and, And then he was doing this thing that he was crawling up the steps on his hands and knees as an act of devotion and religious observance in Rome. This was only the same day or the day later. And you could go into Rome, in that ancient Rome at that time, and crawl up on your hands and knees. This was religion at its worst. And, uh, and it was a way of repenting of your sin, crawling up these steps on your knees. You can read all about it in history if you like. And then he heard in a booming audible voice, he said, once again, the just shall live by faith. Oh, it's a good message. Have we forgotten this message? I believe the church again needs another reformation. 
In the deepest hour of need, we need a reformation. And that same message that God brought to Habakkuk as they were going into exile for more than 70 years. And here they were, the fledgling church, under persecution. And then the just shall live by faith, said Paul. He wrote to the Christian church in Rome. And uh, as he got to his feet, this is Martin Luther, he was never held to religion again. He was set free in a moment in time. A moment in time. October the 31st, 1517. It's an amazing date, 1517. Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the, on the castle door of the Wittenberg church. And there were 95 points of order that he was holding the Catholic church to account or to give, an, uh, to give reason for the way they did things. And he said, the truth had been suppressed in unrighteousness, this is my words, by institutionalised Christianity, and once Martin Luther had that truth, his path was set for life. He realised the bondages of sin and the bondages of religion had crippled the people, had taken the breath of, breath of God out of their life. And the people, had, the people wanted God, the people loved God, but they had no access to it. It was shut up. Often described as the watchword of the Reformation and Martin Luther's revelation that transformed his faith and the faith of the world was the just shall live by faith. Does it still hold true to you today? You see, religious observance is one thing, but the just shall live by faith. And it was amazing that God needed a, he needed a D9. Who knows D9s are not pretty things? Uh, A D9 is not a manicuring instrument, amen? It's not something that you do around your yard to to make a pretty garden, is it? A D9 is an instrument, and and Martin Luther was a D9 in the hands of God to bring to order and to bring and restore this wonderful gospel message to the multitudes and multitudes of humanity. He was described as a wild boar in the Pope's vineyard. (laughs) They were the Pope's own words, describing the wild boar Martin Luther in the Pope's vineyard. Oh, it was good, isn't it? It's great. You see, Martin Luther, he let the cat out of the bag. The Reformation, more than any other event in history, ended the medieval dark world and brought it into the light. People talk about the Renaissance period. How did the Renaissance period occur? It came when the light of God's word came in and we all recognised that one was not above another, one was not more superior to another, that you and I were all made in the image and likeness of God and the light of God broke through when that message of the gospel was liberated to all the peoples, amen? And they could once again read the, the, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own vernacular, in their own native tongue. And so it came to most countries of Europe, and as well as England itself. In fact, God's response to Habakkuk gave the prophet and the people faith and hope in a dark time. We are living in quite dark times, and they are going to get darker. That is a fact. It is going to get darker. But the peace of God which surpasses and transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And in all situations you can, like in Paul's letter to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. There you go. You're not asleep. It's a good thing, isn't it? Rejoice. Paul's letter to the Romans and the powerful re-emergence of that verse infused into the early Christian church saw the church surge ahead. In the midst of persecution, the church surged ahead. 
And that's what is going to come upon the earth again. The church will enter into a time of persecution, but we will flourish. Amen? You cannot crush the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against what God wants to do. And it was when the institutionalized church had almost extinguished the faith and breath of God from the ordinary people, a wild boar in the Pope's vineyard grabbed hold of the word of God and declared it to a generation who was starved of it. And they cried out, the just shall live by faith. When we begin to declare this word again to this people of the, in this region, the just shall live by faith, I think you're going to be surprised at the responses that you're going to get. We have been so timid in these last decades that we are afraid to even call ourselves Christians. We're afraid to make it publicly known. But I want to let you know that the more bold you are, that Parisia boldness can come upon you and we'll begin to see people saved again when that boldness of God comes upon us. The Spirit of the Lord, it says, uh, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The word of the Lord will be prosperous, and it will not return to the Lord void. The just shall live by faith was the cry of the Reformation and the emancipation of the people put to end the medieval dark ages and the light of God brought through and oh, it was a glorious, prosperous time that we entered into. The five solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, you may have heard this, which means scripture alone. Oh, it's, not, it's wonderful, isn't it? Scripture alone. Sola, a sola Christus, which means Christ alone. Christ alone. Sola fide, I'm not sure the pronunciation there, but faith alone. Faith alone. Sola gratia means grace alone. And soli dio gloria, glory to God alone. It's glorious stuff, isn't it? It is wonderful stuff. And this is the message of the gospel that you and I have. Just in rounding up, Martin Luther was talking about the book of James. And I'm going to go to the book of James now because it's in a little bit of a contrast to the just shall live by faith. And Luther was controversial controversial in a statement in his life. And, he, and later on in his life, he says, I almost feel like throwing Jimmy... That means the book of James into the stove. <laughs> this is Martin Luther. And he wasn't afraid to say what was on his mind, Martin Luther. That was the sort of God, man that God needed to break through in this time. Uh, so, uh, but I, you, you and I have to understand. And, and the thing is with the book of James, uh, I'll go over it very, very briefly, but James has only about five chapters, I think. It's, it's not a very, very big book at all. Chapter 1 talks about joys and trials and testing of faith. It talks about patience, and patience has its perfect work. Wisdom and faith, doubting and the double-minded man receives nothing. There is chapter 1. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Oh, that's practical, isn't it? And so we go to chapter 2, and, and basically chapter 2 in a nutshell says, don't show favoritism, love your neighbor. And then it says something that I don't think Martin Luther liked very much because he's in the middle of a reformation. He's trying to retrain a whole continent of people who had for a thousand years had a, had a religion of works. But here it says, faith without works is dead. And that's written in chapter 2 and verse 17. He said, therefore lay aside 
let me say, chapter 2 and verse 17. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So we're talking about a people now. This is Martin Luther's time. And they had a faith that consisted only of works. Crawling up steps, repenting, paying the priest lots of money for forgiveness of sin. And everything was an act of works. You have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So what's Martin Luther to make of this? He says, you believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. Many people say to me, oh, I believe in God, I believe in God. But that's the answer. They don't live for God, but they just believe in it. He says, but do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So here is James. James is the Lord's half-brother. And so what is, what is Martin Luther to make of this? In chapter 3, the untamable tongue, he talks about that, good conduct and heavenly wisdom. In chapter 4, we read about pride, humility, judging and boasting. Chapter 5, he rounds off with the love of money, patience, perseverance and the prayer of faith. So there we have it, five chapters of James. My, my understanding really of this, when knowing a little bit of history and the thousand years that Martin Luther had to contend with of a vibrant early church had become dead for 1,000 to 1,100 years. And he gets hold of this reality that the just shall live by his faith. And it was a revelation to him, and it became a revelation to the whole of the continent of Europe. And people were excited, and people were being set free. People were born again. The power of God was infused into the church again, and it began to grow and multiply. And when people grab hold of the gospel, every area of their life improves. Farming technology and all those sorts of things improve. Education always improves. With the promulgation of the gospel, always literacy increases. But James's letter to the Messianic believers, which they predominantly were, was one of practical Christian living. James here, he was not about presenting new, deep theological truths. And we know that Luther, he loved the book of Romans. He loved the book of Galatians. They were deep theological books. But James is not a book like that. It wasn't, prof- it wasn't a, pro- a profound presentation of doctrine outlining defences of the new and living way. It wasn't a Christian apologetic. And it was never on James's radar. He was the Lord's half-brother. He had listened to Jesus speak in himself the Sermon on the Mount. And really, James is a reflection of the Sermon on the Mount. It's practical Christian living. James, the book of James is Christianity 101. If you want to know what the Christian life looks like, the application of all that's in Romans, the application of all that's in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and all those things, 1 and 2 Corinthians, the application of the Christian life can be found simply, most beautifully, in this book called James. Yes, it does challenge. It did challenge you, Luther when it says, the just shall live by faith, sure. But he says, my, my works will show you. He said that, that faith without works is dead was a challenge to Luther. It was a challenge. And so he called the book of James an epistle of straw. But he never disbanded it. Because all of our, 
all of our letters, all of our New Testament is ordered in order of doctrinal importance. That's how it's placed in your Bible. So of doctrinal importance, James has nothing to offer. But it is a very, very practical instruction on day-to-day living. And we know that Paul agreed it with, really, because he said the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, the fruit of the Spirit of, 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 of a relationship with Christ, we know these. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all evident in this book of James. I encourage you to read the book of James with fresh eyes. It's a beautiful book. It's a simple book. It uses every everyday language of the most basic kind, and it's a letter that can speak to the heart. It's a sort of letter... uh, Often as believers, we often quote James more frequently than we recognise. It's short, it's concise, it's punchy, it's one of those letters that punches above its weight. It says things like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. How difficult is that? That's deep, isn't it? What a deep theological thing there is. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. These are practical living Christian things that we need to apply to our lives. James says, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Isn't it great? They say, oh, you preached a great message there, pastor. Great message. But what we need to do is be doers of the word and not hearers only. In 4.4 he says, do you know what friendship with the world is enmity against God? And he says, don't be in love with the world, be in love with God. Then he says in James 5.16, the effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We know all these verses, don't we? And often we're quoting out of this beautiful book called James. He's got about 12 teachings in a straightforward and manner presented. It's the sort of stuff, I like the book of James, it's the sort of stuff that you can share around your kitchen table with your kids. Teach your kids and teenagers while discussing family life. You can pull out this book of James and just begin to read almost anywhere and it will feed the faith of your family. And why did Jesus? Uh, why did James uh, speak in such plain terms? And I think we have to understand that he too was the carpenter's son just like the Lord. He too was the carpenter's son. Simple, practical, down to earth. He had listened to the Sermon on the Mount. His own own writings were not dissimilar to uh, Matthew chapter 5. In fact, they almost resonate with each other. You can read this beautiful little book called James in about 15 minutes. That's all, maybe 12. The heart of the gospel and the life bearing witness to our daily lives was James' command. And in fact, there are a few commands. It's interesting to note that theologians tell us of the 108 verses in this little book, there are 54 commands. Isn't that interesting? 54 commands. And so there's a lot of do's and don'ts. And they're not suggestions, but they are a command to us. He said, do this, do this, don't do that. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. So I like to couple. I like to couple the book of James with that great, amazing thing that the just shall live by faith. 
And so faith and works are hand in hand. We are called to be people of faith. And yet there is a fruit that should come from our lives that indicate that we have faith. We don't work. This is for it is by grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We know this. Not by works. But there is a works that should be evident in the life of every one of our believers. For me to preach a message on love and yet not show love means that I am that clanging symbol that I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 13 talks about, or 1 Corinthians. And so there should be this evidence of wonderful fruit in our lives. Let's stand to our feet right now. This is a practical message, isn't it? Practical message. One is the just shall live by faith. I think it should be central to bringing this people back to God. It brought about a reformation that I would say Martin Luther possibly is one of the most influential men in the history of humanity. He changed the course of all history. But Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that the just shall live by faith. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful truth, Lord, that has resonated for more than two and a half thousand years to every uh, believer in God. And in the last 2,000 years, our faith in Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that we cannot earn our salvation, but that there is to be a good fruit in our lives as a result of our salvation, as a result of our believing in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Yes, there will be good fruit in our lives. And Father, that we will show others, Lord, our faith by the good fruit in our lives. Let us never forget, Father, that we are, Father God, ambassadors of Jesus Christ and our fruit Father God oh Father I thank you Lord God it would reflect the ongoing work of you operating in our lives I thank you Lord God I pray Lord that the blessing of heaven rest upon everybody here this evening and for those listening in online I pray that the spirit of the Lord seal this message into your spirit in a way that I never can but the spirit of God can I pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen.